people think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, welcome to another episode of Kidney Talk. Today, we're going to be talking about a really important topic, and that is how do we get more people to decide to sign their donor card and agree to be a donor? We have Tania Wallace with us, who's the National Campaign Chair of the Donate Life America 20 Million in 2012 campaign. So welcome to the show, Tania. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about your background and how did it lead into this campaign? Well, uh, a lot of people know me from my work from Donate Life Hollywood. So I'm the campaign director of uh, Donate Life Hollywood. And that originated out of a series of articles that said that everything essentially on television that had an organ donation storyline was both inaccurate and negative. And that was Dr. Susan Morgan, who did that research several years ago. And so in her research, she said, we need the donation and transplant community needs to have a stronger voice with the entertainment industry. And And so that created this uh, campaign of Donate Life Hollywood. Um, Subsequent research by the University of Michigan has actually shown that we've led to an increase in positive organ donation storylines since Donate Life Hollywood. And now we're about at 50-50. Um, and I do find that most of the television shows are, are doing a, a very good job. But one of the things that I was working to do in Donate Life Hollywood was to build these national partnerships. So I had a great opportunity to meet with some of the PR folks at NBC. And the woman sat across the, the table from me and she said, well, what's your goal with Donate Life? And I knew we had a goal. It was to register 100 million Americans. So I said, oh, our goal is to register 100 million Americans on their state donor registries. And she said, well, by when? And I thought to myself, I guess whenever we get there. And that didn't (laughs) seem very motivating. Right. So, um, And then the second thing she said to me, which was a real eye-opener, so it was the entertainment industry that really opened my eyes to a lot of, of these elements of working nationally. But she said, you know what I love about this cause is that everyone is impacted. And I thought, well, you know, there's 110,000 people on the waiting list, but less than 1% of people die and can become organ donors. So how is everyone impacted by this? And fortunately, she went on before I could say anything. And she said, because everyone has a chance to sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Right. And I thought, wow, I had been working for this cause for eight years, and I still kind of thought of ourselves as this marginalized entity, right? Because even though the numbers of the waiting list are growing and need to be, you know, we need more organs available, it's still a fraction of the percentage of our population that really goes into end-stage organ failure and, and ultimately needs a transplant. And again, the number of people who are eligible to be donors is such a small portion of our population that I kept thinking of ourselves as maybe this small cause. And it was NBC that really made me realize 
every American, every person in this country, in this world, really, is touched by organ donation. And in this country, we all have the opportunity to sign up as organ, eye, and tissue donors. So that started me thinking that we need to be doing we need to be doing more nationally. And then the Donate Life America board um, in 2010 set a goal of 20 million. Americans to register by the end of 2012. And once we had that goal and that timeline, I thought, well, NBC would be so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, there's a goal. And also people think of organ donation, they forget about tissue and eyes. I mean, you know, there are burn victims out there. And I mean, it's so easily, I mean, any of us could be a burn victim or have organ failure tomorrow. Uh, Burn does seem a little bit more you know, like that could happen than having organ failure. I've known people that have been severely burned and it's amazing what they can do with skin nowadays. It is. And even my best friend who was a um, a soccer player, she tore her ACL and needed to have um, a transplant. And so she is a a, a tissue recipient for that. Um, So many of our sports figures and others, um, tissue really is such an important part of of what we do. You know, J.R. Martinez, who won for uh, Dancing with the Stars, Mm -hmm. and he had been burned, Mm -hmm. he needed and utilized uh, donated um, skin when he was recovering at uh, Brook Army Medical Center. No, it's pretty amazing. So tell us about how do the state registries work and across the U.S.? Because each one is separate, right? It is separate. Um, and it's an interesting thing for us because as we think, you know, or start to think more nationally, really a lot of what has been done to promote organ, eye, and tissue donation is done at the state level. And that's because how we register as donors is state by state. So most of our donor registries, all the donor registries, in fact, are connected in some way to the motor vehicle department. And they're called different things around the country as well. Here in in California, it's the Department of Motor Vehicles. So the vast majority of people who sign up to be organ, eye, and tissue donors do so through the motor vehicle process. Um, In California, for many years, you just simply got a white card that you could fill out or not fill out, and then a little pink sticker that you could put on your license or not put on your license. But this information was never collected into a donor registry or a database. Um, several years ago, that changed. And around the country, the focus for Donate Life has been to work with each individual state registry to make sure that they have a functioning registry where information about whether or not you want to be an organ, eye, and tissue donor gets put into a secure database and that that information is accessible. And what that does is it really helps to um, speed the process of, of organ donation, meaning if we have this information about someone's donation status, then when we're in the hospital after the brain death testing, after the two notices of a physician to um, to certify brain death, and then after the, you know, with a discussion and conversation with the family, instead of the family saying, I don't know, now we have to make a decision about this, we're able to provide a document of gift and say, here, your loved one made this decision to save lives. And that is so comforting to the family at that time of trial 
tragedy. So then we're able to say, this is what they wanted to donate and we can get their certification. And then we can immediately go into starting to place the organs for transplant. So because of that, because the process goes a bit faster than because the family feels so supported, um, we're actually able to place more organs for transplant and save more lives. Well, one of the things that people probably listening to the show, they're like, wow, I can't even think about my own mortality, or I can't even think about signing a donor card. Or, I mean, there is even some people think, well, if I sign my donor card, they're not going to save me at the emergency room. Have you heard that a lot? And and I always, my response is, is believe me, they're not that organized. <laughs> you know, I mean, and not that they would ever be, but it's like when you show up at the emergency room, they don't know who donors are and who aren't donors. And, and that's not even ethical. But sometimes people think they don't trust the system all the time. It's the number one reason why people don't sign up. And, um, and it is part of my uh, efforts for this 20 million in 2012 campaign to work with some of the talk shows like Dr. Oz or the doctors or others to help kind of debunk that myth and really show the process of organ and tissue donation. I think people, if people understood the process, kind of, you know, pull back the curtain and say, here's how donation works, then more people would understand how that isn't actually possible. And it's interesting because you talk about the donor card and a donor card is what we used to have in California and many states around the nation had donor cards. And that's part of the change or the transition so that people don't have cards anymore. The information is in a secure database. And like you said, they're not that organized to be able to you know, see all of this. It actually, the EMTs and paramedics, the ER, ICU, the entire hospital, none of those people have access to this database. None of those people whose job is to provide primary care service, to uh, medical attention, to save your life. None of those people have the ability or the authority to actually see if you are registered as an organ donor. Only when all life-saving efforts have occurred and death has been declared or is imminent, that's when the Organ Procurement Organization, which is a separate nonprofit entity, separate from the transplant centers, separate from the hospitals, only the organ procurement organizations have access to this information in that secure database. The other thing that I think debunks this myth, but I don't know, this is my theory, is this, this, this one thing. You actually have to be on a ventilator so have ventilated oxygen going through your body and stabilize blood pressure in order to be an organ donor. That's the number one and two things that people are going to do at the scene when the EMT or paramedics get there, when they get you into the emergency room, they're going to get you ventilated to provide oxygen and they're going to try and stabilize your blood pressure. As an organ donor, your heart can't stop and you become an organ donor. So no one can kind of see a half-dead person on the side of the road. Say, oh, I'm going to take his kidney. Exactly. Allow them to <laughs> cardiac arrest and then expect that organ donation can be a, a possibility. We actually work with EMTs, you know, so that at the scene of an accident, it, it's very clear sometimes that someone is not going to survive because of the, the head trauma is just so great. EMTs know that if they get a person ventilated and they stabilize their blood pressure and they get them to the hospital, 
even if this person cannot survive, they may have the possibility for organ donation and to save others. So actually more care needs to be given to a patient in order for them to become an organ and tissue donor. That's a great point. And, you know, a lot of the EMTs out there, hopefully they're being educated on this because it is, it's it's not a very, you know, heartwarming topic to talk about death and organ donation. But for myself, I, you know, my third transplant that I received, I received three deceased donors. It's amazing. And my first two never worked, and it was in the early stages. They didn't know what they were doing. But my third one, you know, I was on dialysis for 12 years, and I you know, I was told I would never get a transplant and I got called and it was some uh, a man in his middle 20s who was in an accident in Denver, Colorado. It was a perfect match kidney for me. They flew it in. I got the kidney. The kidney lasted me 20 years. And I mean, you just think about that, you know, and I, I, I called the kidney Denver you know, because most recipients name their organs. <laughs> I don't know. I do, you know. And I always had a special place. Like, oh, my God, this person made such a difference. I, 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 I'm I, pretty certain that I would not be here today if it wasn't for this man making the choice to donate his organs. Um, another thing that's interesting, and maybe you can explain a little bit about that, you have the registry, but a lot of time it's up to the family to make the ultimate decision. And that's sometimes confusing to people because they're like, oh, I have the pink dot on my driver's license. But that doesn't always mean, you know, that's not the holy grail to giving your organs. It is now. It is if you sign up for the registry? Yes. It is called, it, what it's called is first person consent, which is a legally binding commitment that this is what you want, that organ, eye, and tissue donation, you are signing first-person consent for organ, eye, and tissue donation. So the way we do it now, there's no more donor cards and there's no more pink stickers. And around the nation, this is how it's it's moved. Um, so if you sign up to be an organ and tissue donor... And this is through the DMV? Through the DMV or through online registries. So if you went to DonateLifeCalifornia.org... Um, if you go to DonateLifeAmerica.org, DonateLifeAmerica.org, there's a map of the United States, and you click on your state, and then it will take you to how you can register online. Um, there's only a couple of states who don't have a real easy online ability uh, to become an organ donor. In New York, you have to fill out a piece of paper and send it in because their uh, legislature hasn't uh, approved um, e-signatures, like electronic signatures, but almost every other state has. And so you can simply fill out your information there, and that becomes a legally binding document, uh, better than an advanced directive, because your advanced directive is probably not going to be with you at, in, in the time <laughs> I know. It's going to be a little yeah. bit late, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Because this advanced directives are kind of for people who who know that their medical condition is worsening, and then there's, there's a directive on how to uh, to, to consider care. With organ donors, these are very sudden deaths. These are head traumas. So this is somebody in a car accident or who has fallen off uh, rock climbing or who has had a, a brain aneurysm. Drownings, exactly. <laughs> very sudden where you're not expecting any kind of 
intention of care. And so that's why the first person legally binding document by registering as an organ donor, that is the agreement and and your your family cannot overturn it. Now, if you are between the ages of 13 and 17, you can go online and you can register as an organ donor. Um, it does not become legally binding till you're 18. So that would be the one case. If it was a 17-year-old who registered at the DMV, for instance, um, the parents would have the ultimate ability to to approve that. Uh, it's called intent, first-person mm-hmm. intent. But once they turn 18, and you don't have to do anything you know, in the system, it's just a matter of once you become 18, then that becomes a legally binding first-person consent. So no, um, in the past, Yes, your family would have, it would be up to family consent is what we had. Your your next of kin would need to give family consent. If you're in the registry, that's not the case. The majority of people aren't in the registry. Um, the number of people who sign up, who check yes at the DMV ranges dramatically across the country. Here in California, it's like 23% check yes at the DMV. Um, in states like um Idaho, it's much higher, you know, upwards of uh, 90% of registered donors in some states. Um, so it what do really you think is- that is? What do you think it differs so much? Is it because people are more skeptical in more diverse cultures? Or, you know, I, I'm just trying to think why would that be? Because it's uh, we have the greatest need in Los Angeles. We have a seven to nine year, I think it's nine year, close to nine year wait for a kidney. And only 23% of people are opting in to be a donor. Uh, has there been any studies on why? There has been. Um, I think we need more studies on why. I, I do um, on what it is. But uh, Brian Stewart, who works for One Legacy and uh, does a lot of work with the donation uh, collaborative faculty and a lot of data work, did a, a piece where he looked at the factors, kind of correlation, uh, not causation potentially, but some correlation between quality of life factors and donor registration rates. So it was, you know, places where there were lower crime rates, where there was more civic engagement and civic involvement, where there were higher rates of voting, really higher rates of of. Uh, community involvement and a feeling and a sense of community had higher donor designation rates. So that would make sense for smaller towns. Yes, exactly. As opposed to we're a large metropolitan area and we don't always feel connected to people. Exactly. That's very interesting. You know, you think this is something where, um, you know, why should I do this for other people? You know, here I am, you have concerns, you know, are they really going to work as hard to save me? Or you come from other cultures where um, where there is no donation and, and transplantation system, where this is something that you're being asked uh, for the very first time. What's interesting too is the places where we really have the most potential to increase that number um, and increase the number of people who are getting on the registries at this point in time is two, twofold. One is the first time drivers. And that's really a big one because, as you know, you know, this is very, it seems obvious. If you check yes when you're 16, you you're going to probably stay on the registry. 
That's mm-hmm. going to just be something that it's part of who you are. Um, and a lot of us, it's kind of like voting as well. I vote because my mom votes and my grandmother votes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's example. Part, it is example, and it's it it feels a part of my civic duty. And so, um, being a donor is is very much the same. If people see that donor dot on their parents' driver's license, they're much more likely to then check yes. Um, We need more information and more testing about how to motivate first-time drivers as well. You know, these are 16-year-old kids. They think they're indestructible, so nothing's going to happen. They do, (laughs) but they're also conscientious of what their parents think. Right. And so oftentimes when they're at the DMV and they get to that question, they turn over to their mom or dad who's standing next to them, probably their mom actually, and look at their mom or dad, and their mom or dad, you know, can either say, well, you know, I think it's the right thing to do, or that's not something you have to worry about right now. Right. It's one of, one of the two. Because their mom or sense. dad thinks they're indestructible at, at yeah, 16, too. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to face your own mortality at this time. And um, it's funny. I've been working with Ann Lopez on this 2012 campaign, and she had this aha moment. Her daughter, Mayan, is turning 16 this year. And she said, you know, it it's our job as moms to make sure they're ready for the driving test and ready for the written test and know how to use their blinkers and how to stop at a stop sign fully and completely. But it's also our job as moms to prepare them to answer that question. And, you know, in California and other states, we work on high school education programs. There's a piece of legislation to, you know, require some information about organ donation, um, you know, at every high school. But it really, at the end of the day, is a conversation between the parents and the moms. And so with the 2012 campaign, one of the things we were actually targeting is women who are 18, 19, 20, who didn't check yes when they were 16 and going back to them with this opportunity and saying, would you register now? Um, And you can do so online. You don't have to wait till the next cycle. That's my question is that, you know, if somebody got a driver's license six years ago and they have a pink dot and, you know, does they automatically, are they automatically enrolled, but they, in the system? Yes. So you don't have, everybody who's listening right now across the country, let's say you have a pink dot on your license, you know, do they have to go and do an additional step or are they automatically in the registry? They're automatically in the registry. And everyone, (laughs) what's interesting, only in California do we have pink dots. So even our national effort to uh, have an indicator on the license is actually different in almost every state. In Oklahoma, a lot of places actually is a, a red heart which makes good sense. Um, But if you have that donor indication on your driver's license, you are in your state donor registry. Now, if you would like to make sure that you are and just double check and sign up and make sure that this is all all good, uh, go to donatelifeamerica.org and click on your state and go ahead and just fill out a donor um, designation online. What's interesting about doing it online as well, at the DMV, when you check yes, you're basically saying yes to all organs and tissue, which I think is the best thing to do. When you go online, you can actually make more subtle uh, changes to your donor designation and, and make differentiations about what it is you'd like to donate. 
Well, interesting that you bring that up because a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are people who either are on dialysis or a friend or family member. If you're a family member or something, and could you go and sign up and say, well, if something were to happen to me, my kidney goes to my granddaughter. Can you des- designate that specifically? Not on the registry, not on that donor designation, but at the hospital you can. You can do that. Yes. I mean, that's how some people get transplants. I was at clinic and unfortunately there was a young boy who, a uh, young, young man in his early 20s who died and it was a direct donation to one of the other members of the church. And so, you know, it's interesting how, uh, you know, he knew exactly, I guess his family knew exactly who to help. Yeah. And that's, you know, I I think that's a wonderful part of our system. I I think that the fact that we have the ability to do directed donation really just shows how much um, our system is aware of this sense of community between people. And um, now the person receiving would have to be the right blood type, Mm -hmm. would have to be the right... Meet all the criteria. Meet all the criteria, exactly. And be listed. You know, it can't just be somebody who's on dialysis but not opted. Um, But Natalie Cole received her uh, kidney from a directed donation. It was, um, there was a woman who passed away and the aunt was a dialysis nurse. And Natalie Cole had come into her dialysis center at one point in time. And this dialysis nurse listed, I think, five different people who you know, she had worked with and was touched by and put down five different people who whose kidneys could be direct donation. And Natalie Cole happened to be the right size, the right blood type, and the right match uh, for this directed donation. So it, it was kind of like, oh, it was a fan who did it. And it, it wasn't. It was right. a dialysis There was nurse. a lot of misconceptions going around, like she jumped the list because she's famous. And, you know, the problem is, is that, well, it's actually a good thing. Um, they bring a a lot of awareness celebrities when they have an issue of needing a transplant, but it also gives them a higher profile where they're more likely to get a directed donation. Yeah. So, you know, that's what I was trying to explain to somebody. Yeah, there's no favoritism. She's just more well-known. Right. But I thought it was interesting that it really was this dialysis nurse who put it together. I mean, and if Natalie Cole had come into that dialysis center with a bad attitude and with a negativity and not being nice to people and had acted superior, that dialysis nurse would never I have... I she sang to her. I know. I don't know. <laughs> but she obviously, her, like, she yeah, made an like impact. Yeah, yeah, she, she made an impact on this person's life, along with these five other, you know, four other people that she had listed. And, you know, the odds, the chance, the odds that the, her niece was actually a match with uh, with Miss Cole was, was you know, it's it's you never know what the, what the chances are. So no, you can't do the directed donation through your donor registration, but you can do that um, in discussion with your your procurement coordinator um, at the time. Now, is there any criteria for who can donate? Because some people may be thinking, oh, wow, you know, I'm on dialysis and, you know, they're not going to want anything from me, so why should I bother? You know, I hope my skin is still good and some other things that I got going on. I hope I'm not totally rotten. That's right. Well, and that that's, that leads us to um, the second area where there is... Uh, you're not totally rotten, I by know, the way. I know. I just thought that by was a way. wrong term, but, you know. <laughs> I love it. It'd be good for something afterwards, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, 
the second group of people who tend to opt out from checking yes at the DMV or signing up on the donor registry is once people turn about 55. They start to look at their bodies and what is going on, and now they have diabetes or they have chronic um, you know, lung disease or they have other kinds of ailments. Um, lupus, you know, there's so many things. And especially if people have been used to donating blood for much of their life, and then they have, they, have these diseases, the blood people will say, we're, we're no longer interested in, in your blood. And so people think, oh, well, then the organ people aren't going to be interested in my organs. So we really see this dramatic drop off of people age 55 not registering as organ, eye, and tissue donors. And that is a huge message for us in this campaign as well. And uh, reaching out to ARP and others to say, you're never too old. You're actually never too old to sign up as an organ, eye, and tissue tissue donor. Now, will you be an organ, eye, and tissue donor? That is something that will determine at the end of your life, but we encourage everyone to register. Once we, as the procurement and tissue you know, coordinators and, the, and agency, once we, you have passed, we will have all of the medical history on you. And we will do a medical social history with your family. And so we'll know what diseases you had. But even someone who dies of cancer, actively has cancer in their system, can still be a cornea donor because there's no blood that goes through your corneas. So once people kind of hear that, oh, well, then then there must be something that, uh, that you can use. There must be some part that's good of exactly. me. Exactly. I and mean, tissue I actually, especially. I actually had a surgeon once that told me I had good skin to cut on. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that was a compliment. Um, so I think my skin would be worth a lot. You know what? That's the kind of compliment you get from a surgeon. I really. know. <laughs> I know. I know. A couple of weeks ago, a doctor asked me what I thought my life expectancy was. <laughs> And uh, I'm like, out of the blue, I just said 20 years. So in 20 years, I'll be ready to be a donor. (laughs) Well, and and in the meantime, you know, registering and saying – you know, you can take whatever you need to take and whatever is is available. I would say even, you know, don't rule yourself out with organs too. Um, diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, maybe your kidneys are shot, but liver could be okay, your heart. There, you know, you have to understand that the people who are in stage organ failure, as you know, aren't that picky. They're not that picky. <laughs> there are people who are going to die literally tomorrow. Right. No. If they don't receive an organ. So even if your organs aren't perfect, a lot of times it will get them to the next transplant. It will be that bridging organ that gets them through the next day, week, month in order to stay relisted or stay healthy enough for a second transplant. So you never want to rule yourself out. And even um, now being HIV positive is the only automatic rule out. Uh, for organs, but even having hepatitis. Um, Hepatitis C is not a rule out. We will give hepatitis C organs to people who are also hepatitis C positive. We will even offer, there's people who are on the extended criteria list, so people who are older, who will accept, for instance, a hepatitis C positive um, heart 
And that will get them through several more years to of meet life, their life expectancy. To meet their life expectancy. And as you know, with a transplant, you know, it's a treatment, not a cure. And every year, every day, every moment that you get a second chance is precious. And so that's um, with transplantation what we're what we're trying to do. And because there's such a shortage, please just don't rule yourself out. I know. I was on dialysis 13 years, and it's it's tough. I mean, it's tough. And you know, people who are on dialysis, it's a little bit easier because we have a bridge. It's a it's a beast of a bridge, but you can get through it. People who need other organs, they don't, you know, you either get the organ or you die and there's no bridge. So, uh, you know, I feel lucky to have had my kidneys failed opposed to another organ because there's something they could do for me that's helped me live for 43 years with this illness. You know, in closing, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, once somebody donates an organ, how family members have reunions with people who received the organ. And it actually has been shown to uh, help with the grieving process of a loved one. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, first-time meetings are always a very powerful thing. And um, working with Hollywood, <laughs> that's what they always want. You know, talk show calls, and they're like, we want a first-time meeting between a donor and a recipient. I was like, okay, well... Television isn't necessarily the best venue for this. You know, I mean, people are a little awkward when they first meet each other. And like, you you don't really want that. But it's such a powerful, um, an emotional element of of the whole process. And uh, more and more, uh, both transplant centers and organ procurement organizations really are seeing the power of these first-time meetings and bringing together families who do want to meet. There's still very much a process to it, you know, uh, writing to your transplant center, writing a thank you letter, um, and then they send it to the organ procurement organization who sends it to the family who, you know, decides whether or not... It could be the reverse way, where the people who donated Mm -hmm. the organs want to know who got them. Exactly. So, But it's all very confidential unless you both want to meet. So it's not like they just send them your Facebook page right. and say connect. Right. And, you know, I will say, I know that there's a frustration because I work with a lot of, you know, transplant recipients. And I, I know there's a frustration when they say, well, I've written several times and I haven't heard anything back. There's two things. <clears throat> you have to work through your transplant center because you're not really sure which procurement or agency Uh, work to recover the organ. But if you are a volunteer with your procurement agency, you sometimes working with them directly can overcome that one little hurdle. The thing that, that a procurement agency can also tell you is if the family has requested no future contact, a lot of times when we approach families, you know, we talk to them and then we say, would you like us to continue to give you, you know, information and and follow up with you? And a lot of times, because that's the deepest, darkest moment of their lives, they request no future contact. That means that we can't actually send that letter on to them. The other thing that happens is families break apart after a major tragedy. uh, Divorce happens. Uh, you know, people move away from the area, and they don't often tell their procurement agency where, where they're they going. <laughs> exactly, we're not the we're not top on the list. Um, so a lot of times, we simply can't find the family. So I would say that if you send out a letter, send a few letters. Don't just send one. First of all, 
See if you can find the procurement agency and send it through their family care people too, or ask if they know if there's information about the family. And then three, understand that it may simply be that the family is no longer able to be contacted. Right. And it's not a matter of they don't want to contact you. It's simply they're not available to be contacted. And I know a lot of patients, you know, even for myself, you know, sometimes it's just nice to know that somebody gave you a gift. You don't have to communicate with them. You know, it's just that anonymous gift is just amazing. I mean, the gentleman who gave me the transplant when I was 24 years old, you know, I mean... I just have this idea of who he is, and I was never able to get in contact with him, but it doesn't make him any less special. Yeah. Uh, the final question I forgot is a lot of people always want to know, if I donate my organs, can I have an open casket? This is a question I actually got the other day, and I always tell them, yes. I mean, I, there's no reason why you can't have an open casket, because they get this idea that, you know, you're, I don't know, I guess it's television helps you know, promote those issues. But can you just tell us a little bit about that before we close? For sure. Yes, absolutely. And if you're an organ, eye, and tissue donor, a full organ, eye, and tissue donor, a bone donor, uh, all of, if you donate everything you possibly can, you can still have an open casket funeral. We are very conscientious about the preservation of the body and actually use um, replacement. So if we we remove bone from the arms or legs. We actually replace it um, so with a with a, a substance that uh, preserves the shape of the body. Our goal is if we do a full organ, eye, and tissue donation recovery, and then the mother of this donor wants to see their loved one not dressed. Uh, just simply as they are, that they would recognize and see the that their the body of their loved one has been honored. And that's that's very important to us. We will even do things um, such as when we're having a conversation with the family, is there something specific that this loved one will be wearing in the casket? So if they wanted them to wear their prom dress that was uh, didn't have any arm, you know, was off the shoulder or what have you, then we simply wouldn't recover from the upper extremities to assure that the body looks as presentable and beautiful um, as as possible. So we're very conscientious about that. And we do work with each individual family to make sure that anything that we're recovering is done so and and just the utmost respect. Um, The only real thing that, you know, uh, recovering the mandible, the lower jaw would probably be the only thing that, you you know, you can't have an open casket funeral. And that's very rare. That's not something when you check yes at the DMV, that's not something you're checking yes to. That would be a very rare occasion. So there may be certain instances where we, we request something beyond that, but anything that you're checking yes, you can have a complete open casket funeral and look beautiful. It's yeah, it's it's such a, a difficult topic to think about, but um, I think that you know having twenty million people sign up in two thousand twelve is a reachable goal, and if everybody goes and checks right now at their state registry, and where do you go? You go to donatelifeamerica.org. And on the website, you can also see some of the other elements of what we're doing. One of the things we're going to do is on April 20th is National Donate Life Blue and Green Day. 
wear something gorgeous in blue and green, take a photograph, post it to the Donate Life America Facebook page, post it to your own page with the link encouraging people to register as organ, eye, and tissue donors. And anything you can do to focus on those first-time drivers or the young people, 18-year-old girls really is our target population. We're using fashion uh, in order to to get their attention. And the top 10 looks uh, will win a $100 gift card. So get your granddaughters and your teenagers involved. Get them to do a gorgeous blue and green look. Post it to the Donate Life America Facebook page on April 20th. And let's get out the word. That's great. Well, thank you, Tanaya. And uh, I look forward to the next goal of, what, 40 million in 2013? We'll see. We can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. 